given to me by Woody Shaw, Sonship, Dizzy, and John Kahn, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my music heroes. This is The Jake Feinberg Show. connecting with you anyway man because uh this morning i was in a like a thrift store digging around uh and i found this terry garthwaite album and there's bill oh Sum- my god all right and i'm like so bill you know bill summers you know sometimes you hit sometimes you miss but then you you connect on something like that and the music you know because the music transcends you know and i think that uh, you know that better than most people do so uh, it's an honor to um it's an honor to talk to you brother i actually i just wanted to um, ask, ask you a little bit about your per, your program in New Orleans about uh, getting I don't know what the right word is the rudiments back more more kids playing instruments uh, knowing their roots uh, just want you to talk about that program. What, now, what program uh, specifically? What program is that again? The the one that you're doing the one that you're responsible for in New Orleans about you know I, I saw this clip of you on stage uh, promoting uh, one of your programs. Yeah, I have several programs. So, yeah, I'm a community-based person, right? So, and I do a lot of I do a lot of community uh, stuff to uh, bring bring their level of proficiency not only as an artist playing an instrument, but also on the business business side. 
So I have, I have, I'll, I'll tell you about a couple of projects. I have one is called Club Kid, and Club is spelled K L U B, and Kid is an acronym for Knowledge, Independence, and Determination. And what I do is I go. I have a high school that I have my project in right now, Main High School, which is uh, um, a basically an African American high school here in uh, New Orleans. It does have uh, other ethnicities involved in it, but it's, it's I would say, 85% black, maybe 90. And uh, so I had this idea some years ago to create a, um, a program that would educate young, young uh, 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 aspiring artists, and not only just, not just performers, but people who had interest in engineering or management or becoming an entertainment attorney or an engineer, because it takes a lot, There's, or a radio announcer, because there are many aspects to, to music. It's not the, the performer would be not in a good position if there were no one to listen to his performance. That's right. That's very you true. Know, yep. You know? Absolutely. No, I agree with you completely. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, so what, what I do is, here's, you know, as briefly as I can put it, here's what, what the goals of, of Club Kid are. We go, in, uh, we go into high school with funding. You know, we get funded by some grants and private partners um, and some companies. And uh, what we do is we, we, uh, we, uh, we, we bring a program to the school that does this. We, start, we take them to City Hall. Or we bring them all the paperwork or get them online, and they have to digest what it takes to start a business, be it a corporation, an S-corporation, an LLC, an individual proprietorship, uh, whatever. Whatever it is that, that they need to do to, to, to understand that it is about business. Commandment number one in my program is get paid. Because <laughs> you know, a lot of times, yeah, yeah, a lot of times people don't they look at an artist or a musician and they and they think it's all fun and games and they and they're not willing to compensate musicians to perform you know it's it's a, it's it's a it's a age old problem here especially in certain areas of the country but anyway let me move forward and, and continue to explain the program so what we do is we get the kids to understand what it is to start the business they have to have a fictitious business name they have to register register a names, research it, and all that. Then they have to actually, even if even if it's make-believe, they have to fill out all the paperwork and understand the process. Then what they do is they, at the school, we, we have a talent search, and we find the most talented kids on in the school to be the, and sign them to a contract. They have to then digest that contract in order to, and so they're learning things, but at the same time, they're recording. You know, that we, we start recording day one. We, we kind of flip the script. We start with the fun stuff and then spoon-feed them the business part. So by the end of the day, this is what they have to do. They have to produce a full-blown CD and video product, pro, project, meaning that they, they get their artists, they develop the music, uh, and, f- and figure out how many, t- how many musicians or tracks they need to, to, um, to successfully produce a song. They go to the to a we have studios that we take them to that are um, industry industry standard studios that have great equipment and great facilities, and we take them to the bottom end studio so they can see the grassroots buttermilk bottom because at the end of the day whatever you have that's that's what they have to use to get to the uh, ultimate goal, and so then they produce the artists themselves with with mentors next to them. They do the label copy. They do the publishing papers. They uh, uh, do the mechanical license agreements if we, if we do any cover tunes. They have to manufacture the product. They have to do the line. You know, they have to actually do print it, package it, get the barcode, and shrink wrap it. And at the end of the day, they've gone from A to Z, from creating it, making sure that everything gets done. Same thing with the video. So, I've successfully completed these things with the program here at McMain. We we just mastered the the 
the um, CD um, a few days ago, and uh, now we're finishing up the label label stuff and liner notes and acknowledgments. Blah 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 blah. No, blah, listen. Blah, I want to listen. I got a question for you. At at the end of the day, are there testimonials to the success of keeping kids out of prison? Not just turning them turning them into good citizens. I think that's the point here, man. I mean, I'm I'm not a musician. You know, I'm doing the show. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. I mean, that is the point. The point. Let's see. Basically, you know, like the, the thing about music. The music is science. It's not just music. You know, it, right. it's mathematics. Right. It's language. It's travel. It's it's budgets. It's uh, agreements. It's, it's so it's law. It's science. It's earth. It's wind. It's fire. It's God. It's it's medicine. It's it's psychologically rewarding. And I mean, it's it's so it's spiritual. Music is 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 a mother. It's a healer. <laughs> so, it's a he- yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, but, but I mean, I, I, let me ask you though. In can you talk about uh, in not New Orleans because New Orleans has a thriving live music scene. But how hard is it now? that a lot of places in the country, a lot of the urban centers that used to house you guys for a month at a time, month engagement or hotels, like um, there are no touring circuits anymore. So, I mean, it's really hard now just to get comfortable acquiring your own individual sound. That's my theory. I mean, I, I believe that we don't have individual sound because people don't have an opportunity to play live enough, especially in that setting. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the health of, not the music business, it's not really an industry anymore, but just in general, like, individuality, uh, you know, where where are where are we at individualistically with music? Well, you know, one thing about, you know, you was mentioning about New Orleans has us not necessarily talk about what's happening in New Orleans because we have our own scene. There, there, there are many ills in the scene here in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. So don't, don't think that it's, it, it, there, that I would have to say that every block has, ha, has a good musician on it. I would have to, I would have to say without a doubt, there are, there are so many talented people here right. and it's because of culture, you yeah. know, it's a cultural thing right. because there's so many uh, cultural outlets that don't depend on somebody supporting it with record sales or, or, or downloads. It's not about that. It's about the culture, and it's about sustaining life as they know it. So no one can kill it. There can be no. There are no record sales that can over, overcome the power of the music and culture here. So it doesn't matter whether they buy it or not. It's going on. <laughs> I mean, it's going to go on with a vengeance, okay? Right, right, right. Because it's, a, it's culture. So, but let's let's speak about that on the on the other in other places in the country. Listen. No one will ever, 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 ever stop music from driving in innovations being made. That's an impossibility. The, the, you know, the the growth of, of art and music in America is very is very alive, and it, and it, and every generation or every so many years it takes on on a new complexion. Back in in the in the in the, in the early nineteen uh, hundreds. Uh, or even back into the 1800s or 1700s or whatever, this 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 country, this this whatever this is, it, uh, it it's had a diversity <laughs> of cultures that that have come together mm-hmm. and and rub elbows, be they aggressive or be they with love. They, 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 it, you can't stop it. So and every and an artist's job is to is to express what he sees and feels. In, in his environment, so the, our, our artists will never stop doing that. And, and even uh, I don't care what we do, do there will be some unforeseen development. Like we have, we have the hip hop movement. Everybody predicted that it would only last a couple of months, and here we are, forty some years later, and it's still on the top of the charts. Right. You know, so you can't predict what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. Then you can look at our technological advances. When I was a kid. There was, you know, the, the technology in terms of recording. Uh, you know, a person had a couple of microphones and a, a reel-to-reel tape, and if he had the ingenuity, he could create a good product. And then came uh, some multi-track recordings that that were affordable for the consumer. You know, and uh, then you have people doing eight tracks, 
Well, Rick James became famous with an eight track tape. <laughs> right. So, you know, so then you have uh, the the invention of the or the, um, the 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 sampler, which gave rise to the hip hop movement. It gave uh, some kids in the ghetto the, the uh, opportunity to to sample bits and pieces of other people's performance and create a billion dollar, multi zillion dollar industry that is now there's not anything. In the beginning, it was it was considered trash music. It was considered ghetto music. It was it was considered music of ignorant black people. And and now everybody and their mama is rapping. Okay, you can't turn on the TV without hear, hearing the hip hop something. And actually, on Broadway right now, there's a hip hop play that has generated fifty seven million dollars in advanced ticket sales. Okay, and the, and the play was written by a Hispanic guy. Right. So what, you know what I'm saying? Well, it's wide open. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, yeah. Well, I just like your attitude. Um, I, you know, I wanted to ask you. You know, you are a percussionist, and um, I wonder. I know that it was hard enough for percussionists to to get gigs, uh, but every record I I, I focus on in the early '70s has percussion on it, um, uh, sometimes multi-percussion and, and all different bandmates playing the percussion. And then and then after the drum machine came in, the elimination of the human seems like, and also on top of the fact that somehow that per, additional percussion seemed to disappear, we moved into disco. I wanted you to talk a little bit about that time period, not for you personally, because you were becoming a band leader, but also is there any truth to the idea of the mechanization took away from additional percussion because it went away? I mean, I know it's a... It bu- took no one... You know, no, it didn't really take away... We, If you look at the world at large and don't add America, America is a small, <laughs> a small percentage of, of the of the percussion world. You see yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, percussion has never been respected here. It, uh, the, in the, and when you deal with with uh, what's called, they have a word for for percussion in uh, in the symphony orchestras and uh, and those kind of uh, uh, so called classical kind of situations. They call it legitimate percussion. Okay, they have a word that they call timpanis and and glockenspiel and bells and 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 vibraphones. They call that legitimate percussion. So what's the rest of it? Right. What is what's the rest of it? So that's not a very good that's not a good terminology because that that means everything else is illegitimate. Is there not legitimate? Okay, so yeah. this, this, here there's an issue with it and, and it and it dates back to slavery. But in other countries in other countries it's not unusual for the band leader to be a percussionist. Not at all. In Cuba the, many band leaders are, are leaders are percussionists in Brazil, in India, in Asia, in Africa. That's not, it's not unusual at all. It just it just so happens that the respect level here is is is, is not good. I often go on a for instance. I'm like I, I tell people this, and some of my constituents and friends don't like me to say it, but percussionists are the N word of the music industry. We're the last one hired. We're the first one fired. Who are you going to get rid of, the bongo player or the bass player? Right. Okay? It's like that here. You see what I'm saying? There's a low understanding. In fact, they have a lot of guys that if they have a few dollars, they can go to any they can go to any major uh, music outlet and purchase all, all the percussion instruments they want and get some pretty cases, and all of a sudden the next day they are percussionists. You see what I'm saying? You know, there, there's all kinds of things happening out there. But you made a good point about the machine. You said that did that machine affect the, the percussionist yeah. losing work? Let me tell you something. When uh, when the there was when the it was really the sequencer that made that happen. Mm. The sequencer sampler. The, the, you could when the, the keyboard players took over. In the 70s, yes. going into the 80s, yes. it became the keyboard player's d- domain. You didn't even need a trap drummer. You didn't need a violin player. You didn't need horn players because everything was sampled and you, and was accessible on a floppy disk that you could put into uh, an emulator, too, or any given 
uh, a technologically advanced device at that time and have a complete orchestra at your fingertips. Okay, mm-hmm. that was that's what happened. It didn't only affect the percussionists; it affected everybody that was playing in an instrument. Period. That's, it wiped yeah. out a whole generation of 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 of, of actual people performing on their instrument. Matt, okay, Matt, now, no, I want to ask you. Back I, I want to come on. in. This is a, this is a dialogue. I want to I want to ask you something about um, the. It goes back to slavery. The drum goes back to slavery. Can you cite? Uh, can you talk at all as an ethnomusicologist about Congo Square? The validity of the of of how of the communication that the slaves had. And how, oh yeah, I can speak on. I would I like you to speak. I would, that, that's, yeah, I would like you to talk about specific stories. Uh, and even names or dates. I think this is absolutely essential. Well, you know, con- you have to understand. Number one, it wasn't called Congo Square. Uh, and, and 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 for and for example, it was never called Congo Square. It was if it were, if if it was if the, the word would be pronounced Congo. Okay, it, it, it's just a lot of things have happened. But let me let me say let me tell you what. What yeah. that area was about. Yeah. The, in, in New Orleans, they call it back of town. How do you spell okay. it? Okay. What back of town? Back of town. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. It's, 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 no. Yeah. Back. It was. It was. It was in an area that they described as back of town. Right on. Or, or back of town. Okay. And it was an area um, where the uh, the the Native American ethnic group, the Homa Indians, uh, had their harvest festivals. It, it has always been an, a very spiritual area used for special occasions and events, okay? So and, and during the days of slavery here in, 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 in New Orleans, the, uh, the, the, somehow the, uh, the, the, uh, the slave owners felt it was, it, it was t- to, their, to their advantage to allow the slaves, some kind of, some kind of freedom, some kind of, I wouldn't call it freedom, but I would say it was, it was the uh, the the opportunity to let to release some of the tension, to release some of the aggression, right. to release some of the despair. Okay, so what they would do is they'd open up this huge area, and there would be three to six hundred enslaved people in this area every weekend okay and mm-hmm. it became a it became a place of great importance for many reasons because new orleans is a poor city and that meant people were coming to new orleans and one of the points of interest was what happened in what they really called place congo that's what it was called place congo or translated congo place Okay. And later on, it became Congo Square when people just they did they out of ignorance. Okay, so but at any rate, uh, what, happened? what happened? What happened at that time? What would happen? Well, what, what, what happened? Well, let's talk about what happened. What would happen in, in this place would be this: yeah. there were different ethnic groups. There were people from different areas of Africa that were enslaved here in Louisiana, and there were significant numbers of different ethnic groups where if you went into the center of Congo Place or Congo Square, as they call it, you you would see this. You would see a, a group of musicians and dancers that were, that were doing traditional Congolese dances and singing in Key Congo, okay? Mm-hmm. And, or you would see people from Senegambia or different, people from different ethnic groups to the degree that People could, dis- could 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 determine the ethnicity of that particular ethnic group by the facial markings, or the clothes that they adorned, or the drums that they played, or the songs that they sang. Right. So what would happen is that one ethnic group would play, and when they would subside, then another group of people who played a, an entirely different style of music to some degree would would perform. And over a period of time, this is what happened. They began to trade these, these they began to share uh, these rhythms, which were already African rhythms, and they had a relationship, in, in a relationship to each other already. 
they were already playing certain patterns that were indicative of their own music because there was a certain amount of homogeneity in, in West African and Central African music. So there were similar similarities all, already. But here's what happened. Instruments like the banjo were created. Mm. Uh, uh, um, actually, the first... The first actual trap set or drum set where a guy sat down and played uh, <laughs> a tenor drum, a bass drum, a snare drum, some cymbals, maybe some uh, some tom-toms, some Native American drums, and they still call them tom-toms today that are used on the drum set. Right. Uh, that a person who sat down and played as a, as a musician playing all those instruments by himself, that was the product of Congo Square. Wow, it, it 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 happened here first, and so all of those sounds—the the, the horns, the zithers, the 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 the, the, the thumb pianos, as people call them, the mbira, the marimbula, and all kinds of instruments. The washboard—they already had instruments like that that we use in the African setting. Uh, an amalgamation of all these things finally created what we call jazz. So, and, it came, and the bulk of it, yeah. the gritty, gritty part came out of Congo Square. And, and, if, if, if there was not a Congo Square, I doubt if we would have jazz. Okay, and, and again, you're, you're like, you're, the density of your knowledge is, is fantastic. And again, one of these overlays that sort of lies on the surface for my generation and younger generations is this idea that, uh, you know, the Louisiana purchase, uh, was, was, uh, made in a sense because, uh, I guess because, um, there was, you know, people were, were forming, it was becoming a bit of a revolt against the French. French couldn't handle it. And, and uh, the, uh, you know, the colonials were brought into because their, their tactics were harsher and they clamped down on the drumming. Is there any, can you talk about that at all? Oh well, you know, let's talk about that. You, you, number number one, number one person to talk about is Toussaint Louverture, who overthrew the French in Haiti. Okay, so mm -hmm. here you have some, here you have some barefooted, no clothes wearing, enslaved people who had still retained their African spiritualism. And their war and their war, warriorship, who would not be denied, and they went up against the French, and 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 of course you must re realize that voodoo, hoodoo, and all of that, a lot of that coming from came from Haiti to to New Orleans, right, okay, right. and that was that was one of the that that was one of the ways mm. that um, mm. that uh, Toussaint overthrew overthrew the French. He, 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 he used psychology, he used spiritualism, he used the, the knife, the gun, and then the rocks, the stones, the dirt, the trees, whatever he could to fight the oppression that he faced. Well, the same thing happened here when, 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 when that happened in the Caribbean. It sent a ripple through all of, of slaveholding America and anywhere else, the Caribbean, the West Indies. It, it struck fear. Into the into the hearts of the, of those people who own slaves, okay. And as time went on, with the say say in, in Place Congo or Congo Square, as time went on, whites became increasingly suspicious and afraid of mm -hmm. the price. There was there was a huge revolt here, where where not only enslaved people, but even some. Plantation owners joined the slaves. White plantation owners joined the slave revolt to try to squelch it. Okay, so I think that had a lot to do with the demise of Congo Square. It was fear. Let me let me tell you something else. Go ahead. That, let me tell you something. Really also, listen. I want to tell you. Speak, no, speak like this into the phone because when you go on speaker, it's very hard to hear you. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like to hear your voice right uh, up on the phone. Yeah. yeah, you probably can hear me better now. Now you now you sound good. Yeah. So listen. Every day, in, in, uh, that they the, that the enslaved people went to to Congo Square on the weekend or Sunday or whatever, um, they had a signal when they had to go back to their respective plantation or home, 
And you know what the signal was? No. It was a cannon. That was the signal to end your day, your pleasure, mm. your joy. You hear a cannon. Bam. Time to go. So just that. Just 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 that fact lets you know how severe how severe this slave thing was. That you were you were signaled to to flee, you know, and get back to where you needed to be. Posse's, bam. So it was already fear. But the other thing about Place Congo, Congo Square, is many business deals got struck there because it was a point of interest for not only the slaves, the enslaved, but the people who who subjugated them. Right. It was also a place where, where sailors came and businessmen came to strike deals and, 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 and uh, enter in passage agreements. You know what a passage agreement is? No, I know. Go ahead. Explain. A passage agreement is between a southern white gentleman and a Creole lady because mm-hmm. many of the white gentlemen, so-called gentlemen, during slavery had two families, a white family on one side of town and a black family on the other side. And it was something that was accepted. Most or so just the, upper so class. All, of these, yeah. all yeah. of these kind of things were going on in Congo Square. I'm business, t- yeah. a lot of business. But I, I think at the at the core, it was also this, um, this uh, regional, um, regional bias uh, of not wanting any kind of, I mean, jazz came... Uh, the music, I mean, the, the strivers, the beboppers, the guys like Dizzy Bird, you know, those guys, it all bled out of that. And and so it was seen. Yes, this is true. And I just, yeah, what I'm trying true. to say is like, you know, uh, it it's amazing how it it was able, because of the authenticity of the music, it, it's last, it's stood the test of time in some ways. Although you go back to what you said earlier about, your, uh, uh, you know, orchestra, orchestras now, they don't consider... Uh, timbales or congos, bongos, you know, uh, tablas, uh, percussion, you know, well, they, it's beneath them. So it's like, have we... Bec- no, they, 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 they consider percussion, but it's not legitimate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I don't know what So, means, I mean, though. it doesn't fit into a more westernized European classical setting. I mean, we're, you know, to me, it's like very frustrating uh, to... to to not have that stuff, it was here at one time, and it was very vibrant, and it really was when you were first coming of age. I wanted to ask you about uh, how you met Ndugu Chancellor. Oh, well, going to L.A., if you're in L.A. for any length of time, you're going to meet you're gonna meet everybody. You know, especially since I was playing with Herbie Hancock, when I got with Herbie, I had to be around 21 or 22. And um, I started visiting him in, in, uh, at his home in, um, in Hollywood. And, of course, being around Herbie Hancock, that was like the top of the heap. That was right next to the Quincy Joneses. And, hey, you were pr- prime time. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm there, and I'm and, – and there's no doubt if we played at the Roxy or the Troubadour, I'm gonna meet. I'm gonna meet everybody within within the night. I'm gonna meet cool guys and people. <laughs> so he was, and Dugu was one of the people that I met. And Dugu worked with George Duke a lot. No, I, I way back when I started my career about almost five years ago. I mean, guys like John Hurd and, and, and Dugu and, and George Duke, they, they were some of my first interviews, and I really... But then I, I run into your albums as a leader, and I'm like, you were using... He produced some of your albums, so I'm like, I, I just want to know about any times that you... The first time you guys got together to play, and, and that... Tra- I couldn't even tell you. I couldn't even remember right the first time. But it's, you know what, more to the point... We played together so many yeah, times. Right. I can't remember... I can't even remember the first time we met. I just... Uh, you know, it's it's uh, and Dugu was involved in so many things, and it, um and when and when you're in L.A. at that time, especially seventies and eighties, you're in L.A. and you're doing studio work, which is which is not like it. It, it, it uh, it's kind of it's a a great, great deal different now than it was back then. But 
I'm running into these guys on a daily basis. I'm seeing Harvey Mason at recording sessions. I'm seeing um, Wawa Watson. I'm seeing I'm seeing Wayne Shorter. I'm, I'm with Herbie. I'm with Freddie Hubbard. I'm with you know George Cables, and I'm with Joe Henderson, and I'm with I'm seeing Joe Sample and playing with him. And I mean, it was just a time and period where there was, there was um, a plethora of clubs and places and 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 things to do and places to go and and musicians Jocko and. And and Joe Zavinu and I could go on and on. Yeah, I, no, I, I mean it's it, I've, on a daily basis. Well, no, I mean, it, uh, uh, you know, it, it comes down to. I wanted to know the question I had for you was um, when you I want you to tell me tell the audience the story of the day that Herbie saw you playing. And, oh, okay. and, and I really want to know how that, because I mean, everybody had their own matriculate. I mean, Paul, I, I talked to him, I know Harvey, Harvey was the first drummer in the Headhunters, but you know, he was rocking out the studio scene in LA. So he went down there, you know, Herbie was pretty much financially broke at that point in his life. And he told Mike Clark, I can't pay you a whole bunch of money, even at that time, but we can tour the world and we can have a ball and, you know, we'll, we'll make, let's do it, you know? And, and so they went. And uh, I, did you, is this something you're getting out of his, his memoirs? No, in my own work. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what I'm trying to, I, I, I have not read his book. I, I, and I do my own journalism. Okay. Yeah. What I, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to say, you know, I want your, I know he, he saw you, you know, and I, I talked to, uh, I, I just wanted to know that how, how that evolved. I'll tell you how that happened. I was a student. I'm going to tell you, it's a bit, I, I, I need to, to give, give you some, some pre-roll before I get to, get to how we met. Yeah. Um, I was in Detroit. I was born and raised in Detroit and in Louisiana. But I spent, I went to school in Detroit. And when I was a high school student, I dropped out of high school. And uh, I went to work at a, at, a, at a racetrack. And I won a race called the Daily Devil. Can you hear me? I sure can. Well, I thought we may have been disconnected. So anyway, I, I, I won this race called a Daily Double. And I had maybe, when the horse came in and won, I was a busboy in the clubhouse. I had about 50 dishes and glasses on a tray. I threw them up in the air. <laughs> I flipped everybody off. And I took my money. And I got a plane ticket to California. And that was the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. If I didn't win that race... I would have never met Herbie Hancock. Wow. I would have never gone to California. I may have gone, <laughs> but I would. It was it was a magical thing that happened right. when I got to when I got to California. After I was there for several months, I was told if I was a resident of California, I could go to a college, a junior college, free. And I didn't have a diploma, so that was an issue. Some people helped me. I got into junior college. I applied for UC Berkeley. My grades, I had a good grade point average. I applied for UC Berkeley. I got accepted. And that's where I met Herbie Hancock. I had a group that I had put together that did traditional African, Brazilian, Cuban, Haitian music. It was dancers and drummers and singers. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. This is what I want to know about. So what was the name of that band? It was called Bata Koto. Okay, and I want to know. I want. I would like. Koto, and we opened for Herbie. At there was a new arts museum at the at the, on the campus they were opening, and they had invited Herbie to to mainline uh, a performance, uh, and I and, and I was the support act. I was a I don't know a sophomore or, or probably a junior or senior in college, and um, after the performance. Mr. Hancock approached me about <laughs> coming to awesome. sit in with him in, in, in a nightclub that he was performing at in in um, in San Francisco. I think it was the Jazz Workshop. I think it was. And uh, actually, when I went to the, he said, "Well, you know, bring a few instruments." And so I did that. Now I'm going to tell you something that happened. That that's really funny. I got to the club that night, and I'm I'm like 21 years old, and I'm excited as hell because <laughs> I'm going to sit in with Herbie Hancock. This is a big deal. This That's is a big, big deal, deal man. For me. Yeah, yeah. So I brought two conga drums and a little bag of percussion, and I didn't put this stuff on the stage. I put it on the side of the stage, 
I wasn't so presumptuous as to put it on the stage. I didn't know where to put it. So I put my stuff on the side of the stage, and this was like maybe an hour or so before the show was to start, and Herbie walked in the door. And when he saw, when he was walking through the club and he glanced over at the stage, he saw my percussion, and he says, what's all this? I won't complete the word, but he said, what's all this stuff over here? Right. And uh, and I, I looked. He walked to the back, and I went over to my instruments. I picked my stuff up, and I left. And I didn't sit in with him that night. He never knew I was there. Six months later, he came back to UC Berkeley to the campus, and he came to give a lecture in the music department. And I was the teacher's assistant for the professor in that class. And I was asked to pick Herbie up and bring him to the class. So I went in a car to pick him up. And on the way up to the class, he was, you know, like, well, have we met before? Blah, blah, blah. I was, like, kind of brushing him off because I I didn't really consider him a good guy at that point. Right. <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, this you is know, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, you. anyway, here's how, did, how it ended. Before the day was out, he, we had a conversation about what happened. And he said, I did that. And I said, yeah, yeah, I think, I, I think it was Herbie Hancock. <laughs> and uh, and um, and he said, "Well, why don't you come play with me tonight?" Right. So I did, and I actually sat in with him that night. And then a few few weeks later, he asked me to come to to um, to, to Santa Monica. Um, and oh, I actually came and sat. I actually sat in with the band again several other times. I didn't know I was being auditioned, but I guess I was. And um, he asked me to come and perform with him in in. Um, and Santa Monica was the first time he was going to pay me to play. The other times I just came and sat in. Right. So I was excited about that. I'm actually, I'm, I actually can put this man down as a credit once, once I perform with him and I get paid. That's a different level. So he said uh, at the at that point he had a band called Sexton with Billy Hart, uh, Buster Williams, Julian Priester. Eddie Henderson and Doctor, uh, Dr. Gleason. Dr. Gleason, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, I, when I got to um, Santa Monica, I figured that's the band that I would be playing with. I was just going to be playing in the band with, with those guys. And when I got to the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium and I got to the stage, I was there about before anyone else, and I, all I saw on the stage was a grand piano and a harp. <laughs> and I was like... Well, and then Herbie walked in. I said, well, Herbie, where's the band? He said, the band is me, you, and Alice Coltrane. And that was it. That was my first um, gig with him. Um, yeah. I, I, listen, my mind was just blown. I got a piece of music I want to play for you, and then we'll come back and break it down. All right.
the Jake Feinberg Show, brought to you in part by the Stereo Hospital, the Circle Tree Ranch, Abbott Taylor Jewelers, and the Jewish Community Center of Southern Arizona. We appreciate their support. All right, Mr. Summers, what do you got for us, brother? What's that from? What was that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. know. Yeah, that was that. I don't know what track it was, but uh, it's off the album "Jewel of the Lotus." In the Lotus, oh, you know what? I thought that's what it was from, but I didn't hear the the Benny's horn come in. Exactly. Well, no, I mean this was I. I I played it. It was the Buster Williams on bass. I I think it was Billy Hart, but maybe Freddie. I don't know what Freddie Waits was playing, but then you were you were in there. Uh, uh, playing per- definitely percussion, just I, I, yeah. And I want, I, I, you yeah. know, I was suspecting that's what the, that was from Jewel and the Lotus. A lot of times, I play and, tunes, and the main the main leader's not on the track, so there's no way you would have known that. But I'm just saying, the how did you? Um, can you talk about in when you guys were just in that groove, uh, be it the uh, studio or in a live setting? Um, well, no, specifically in the studio how you recorded that music was it all done live with you guys together or were you doing were you overlaying stuff well there was a there was a uh, if i there was man you, you know it's hard to remember those <laughs> i mean you know i've done so many recording sessions i'm just trying to think yeah. i i i think we did uh, we did a lot of live stuff I, if, if you know but i couldn't swear to it i really couldn't I know that I did do some overdubbing, which is overlaying, as you called it. Right. Uh, which means that I played. I played to. No, we did do it live, and 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 um, we did. I, I think I, I. I don't even know if I did any overdubbing. We may have done all of that live. <laughs> I do think we did it all live. Right. Yeah. No. And 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 uh, specifically. So you show up. I mean, you were playing. Um, uh, uh, Ancient ancient flutes. When uh, when Herbie first saw you in that band in Berkeley, no, but you know I I was a I was professionally a saxophonist and a flautist before I was a a, a, a a percussionist. Before I went when I before I went went totally into being strictly a percussionist, it, it happened because of, of an incident at the Apollo Theater. And uh, what, what happened was, um, this is how I became, you know, primarily a percussionist. I was in um, uh, in my senior year in college. I wanted to do, I wanted to really figure out if I could really be a, uh, a professional musician. I was playing in bands, but I wanted to test the waters, so I drove across the country. And since I was raised in Detroit, I thought. I could walk into Motown and get some work. <laughs> I couldn't even get in to see the receptionist, um, but I did. Yeah. I did meet a guy named Harvey Fuqua. Oh my God! Who yeah. was married to Barry Gordy's sister, and he he had a band, and he heard me playing flute. I came to visit some friends that were in this band called New Birth, and um, he said, "Man, if you could make it to New York City." Uh, you can play on this RCA record that I'm recording with the band. Oh my! What 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 New Birth album is that? I need to know that right away. It's called It's called Birthday. Oh, are you it's credited? Are you credited on the back of that album? I'm not. On, I, I, I think. So, I, I guess. Okay. I so this is, so Fuqua in so many years. I don't know. Fuqua uh, Fuqua was, was he heard you play? He's like, I want you to play flute, or or you also play percussion. He, he could, no, I was playing. I was playing woodwinds. I was at a rehearsal at one of the band at the band leader's house, and I was just sitting in. We were just hanging out, and I was playing sax and flute. And and Harvey Fucar walked in, and he said, "Hey, flute." He called me Flutski. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Hey, Flutski, come here." And he, he 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 said, "Man, if you could make it to New York, I could put you on this recording." Wow. So I said, "Well, I, I said, yeah, well, I'll be there." And because that's why I left, I left, I left Berkeley to see if I could, if I could actually be a musician and go to New York and do something. So here it is. I, I'm, I'm going to Detroit to try to get into Motown. Now I'm going to New York to to play with in the studio with this band. 
and I'm going to get paid. I mean, it was a, it was, it was great. And and I had a Volkswagen, but the, I had no starter in the car. I mean, I actually had to push my car to get, get it started. But I had it full of instruments. I had percussion instruments, and I had my saxophone. I had an alto sax, a tenor, wow. a C flute, and an alto flute. And um, they were all high-quality instruments, very expensive. And uh, I, I got a job at the Apollo Theater playing saxophone, and flute with New Birth. And then I got a job with Bobby Womack playing percussion. Oh, man. Are you? Wait, wait, wait. It was, it was, uh. It so, was, no, wait a minute. Wait no, no, a minute. no, 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 hold when on. I was on stage. Wait, wait, wait. When I was on stage with, with Bobby Womack, someone stole all of my horns. And that meant that I was now solely a percussionist. So, now what were you going to ask me? <laughs> No, because I wanted to be clear that you were, you had a gig as at the Apollo, and then so yes. so so you, so big big acts that would come in like Womack, New Birth. I mean, was that was that like a like when when acts would come in, you would be the percussionist, or or they if they was anybody in the city at the time, and you were playing with them consistently. No, I just happened to be there. I was passing through town. I was only there because Harvey Fuqua invited me to come to New York and, and, and record right. New Birth. So when we recorded New Birth, that's record called Birthday. I played a flute solo on a, on a record called, on a tune called Theme from Buck and the Preacher. So, so I mean, yeah, I'm trying I mean, to get I the, was playing yeah. horns. No, know, I, want, I, I played horns. Yeah. Look, a horn player that can play percussion was a novelty, and it was also a way to get, get work. I could do more than one thing. I want to get the timeline straight here. How old were you in ninth when you first met Herbie? It was in your senior year of undergraduate school. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. It was at nineteen. And I was in, I was I was at that particular time because I quit high school and worked uh-huh. for a, a, a period of time. By the time I got to be a senior, I was twenty one years old. I was. I guess that's pretty much on time. Twenty one. Twenty two. Well, yeah, but I mean like that's. That. I guess my, the and that was in nineteen sixty nine. That had to be 1971. 1970. So the first, the, the first time when Herbie came in, sort of, you know, said what the f to your percussion, and you bounced out of there. That was in that was in 71, and then you did not connect with him again until the Alice Tr- Coltrane concert. I just want to get the timeline. No, no. What happened was after he came to the ca- campus, and 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 I went to sit in with him, right. and I and, and and I took my instrument right. out. Maybe six or seven, eight months later, he came to the campus again to do a lecture, and that's when I met up with him again. Right. It, it, it may have been a year later, but it was it was some time passed, and then I, he asked me to come in to sit in with him, and then I then for months after that, I would come in and periodically sit in with him uh, with the band. Sexton with uh, you know Billy Hart and all those guys, oh, and uh, then and, and then sometime after that, because the, because Headhunters the record Headhunters was not recorded until 1973. That's right. Okay, so there was a there was a period, there was a span of time, a year and a half or so, that I was kind of dabbling with Herbie, you know, in and out, and then uh, just before he started the Headhunter band. I was invited to play with him, and that's when we played with. I, I played with him, and I was Coltrane. That was the timeline, but the, but but the uh, opportunity with New Birth came before Herbie. Absolutely, exactly, and so that was in the interim period when you kind of just left high school before you or before you went to college. Yeah, I went to. I dropped out of high school and went to work. <laughs> right, yeah, that's that, what happened there. Right, but, and then went to then went to college after. I mean, I was out of high school for. Over a year before I went to college, right? I, I, I mean, I went to California and I didn't have a diploma. I didn't was I didn't, I, sir. I never graduated out of high school. Period. To this day, okay, I don't have a high school diploma, and that's a you know that's one one thing that's very important for young people to understand. I, I could give I could give a damn about a, a diploma because people buy them, people <laughs> cheat, yeah. people steal. Sure. Uh, it's it's knowledge that gets you where you where you're going, and your own ingenuity, and your own ambition, and your own energy. Nothing can stop you 
if you have a degree or not. My father used to say, if you had a cure for cancer, it would care if you had a degree or not. As long as, long as you have the cure, as long as you know what you know. I, when I dropped out, out of high school, my father didn't say a word to me. I, I asked him six months later why he didn't complain, because he, he always expressed the desire for us to complete our education. He said that's what he, his answer was. If you had a cure for cancer, they wouldn't care. Just do what you got to do. We're going to um, – I have one more question for you as we wrap up. Uh, we got we got really locked in today, Bill. I just wanted to um, talk to you a little bit about your collaboration with, uh, with Alan Toussaint. Oh, you said collaboration. Well, I, I, I think in general, like, if you can, if you, let, me, let me rephrase that. That was sloppy. Uh, stepping back from it all, his contributions and significance to American music. Of Alan Toussaint? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, well, I, I definitely had an opportunity to, 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 to get to know him and, and work with him many times. Uh, especially before Hurricane Katrina. He he owned a studio here called, what was it called? It was called... Um, Seaside. Seaside. Ooh, Seaside. Uh, pardon me? Is, is it called Seaside? Seaside Records? Seaside. Seaside. Seaside Records. Seaside. No, Sea Saint. Sea Saint, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I recorded there many times. I met him yeah. and his son, Reggie. And so uh, uh, when I became a permanent fixture here in New Orleans, uh, I, I had an opportunity to record for him because on a percussion level, when it came to do what I do, there there weren't any people in the city that did exactly what could do what I do specifically. Of course, percussion is... Is a major part of brass bands here, and uh, certain types of music. But then, my my specialty is world world percussion. You know, mm-hmm. so so he he you know based upon my repu- reputation and playing having played with her Herbie, it was not it was pretty easy for me to melt into the music scene. I came with credentials, so I spent a lot of time around that this man, and on many occasions, in fact you know, performed on many concerts either with him or my band next to him, next to his band. And he was he was but he was like Quincy Jones of New Orleans. Right. Okay, so there it is. I mean I can't I can say no more than that because <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, Quincy is the czar. And and um and and Alan Toussaint is very much the was very much the Pope. Okay? Right. He right. was the Pope. The Pope. I like I that. He's the, the pope. pope. Yeah, right. You're giving these guys different, yeah. different, different labels. But I mean, can you give an example of his transcendent quality? What made him a special figure? I would have to say, you know, his compositional skills. Mm-hmm. Because he wrote many, many great hits, and he worked with greats like, like uh, Fats Domino and and um, and Irma Thomas, and wrote hits for her which were, you know, like major hits back in the day, R&B hits. Sure. Or what you, you know, I mean, I would call them rock and roll hits because, you know, it's funny. Uh, people people think that, you know, when they hear, hear the word rock and roll, they, they, they think of of the great, they think of, let me say, the um, other bands, you know, <laughs> uh, rock and roll. Uh, they may even think of Elvis Presley. But and, uh, when I was growing up, rock and roll was was not even a term used in the white community. <laughs> it, was, it was a word for R&B. It was pre-R&B, really. Rock and roll. What did they use? What so, did they say? Pardon me? What would, what would they say? What, what, what was the term they used? What was the term? It was rock and roll. You, I don't know what they use because listen, you have to understand. Believe, come on, wait a minute. Let's get let's get this straight. <laughs> you know, but let, let's really deal with that issue. You have to understand what this is so important. It is African American expression musically, like the, the, these contributions that that this specific ethnic group made to to certain part of certain area of the arts. Okay, and you know, it's like. It's not about race. It's about facts. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to learn Eskimo music, please go to the Eskimo. <laughs> okay? It's real simple. It's not about race. It's just about geographics 
and where things are happening on the planet and who innovates them. So, for instance, back in the day when Count Basie and Duke Ellington were walking the streets, who was the king of swing? Do you know? Uh, both of them. No. There was specifically one person that was named the king of swing. Do you know who it is? Who? Tell me the two guys again. Okay. Duke Ellington and Count Basie were walking the streets. Basie. Performing, performing and composing. Who was the king of swing while they were in their heyday? Basie was swing. Oh, uh, so you don't know. You had I'm like that's something you're gonna have to go through with your with your uh, uh, uh musings. With your Yeah, no, I did. Yeah, but no, okay, let no, me no, ask no, you another question. When Bo Diddley and <laughs> and Chuck Berry were walking the streets, who was the king of rock and roll? Dude, no, uh Chuck Berry. Elvis Presley. You you didn't say Presley, you said Bo Diddley and, and... No, you I said when Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry were walking the streets, who was the king of rock and roll? Elvis Presley, exactly. Right. Well, you're. I'm not. This uh, is not in my wheelhouse, man. Summers. I'm off in the. Uh, to me, I'm marinating in that African band at Berkeley. That band. Uh, it, it, that's where the, that's where my pocket is, and I wasn't even around at that time. But the open mindedness was incredible, man. And 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 the truth is that you know Toussaint, you were about to go off and talk about his influence on white. White Rock, you know, and I, I look at people. Well, you know, well, the thing about it is there's some confusion about about what happened here, you know, historically and who did what, when, and where. So, but listen, let's not diminish his importance by talking about anything that might be politi- politically okay. challenging yeah, no, it's okay. to, to prove mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. It was, he was a great man. I knew him as a person. He was a very soft-spoken, mild-mannered giant he was a a giant of a man who who was really supportive of his community and 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 actually helped create a genre of music that it will 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 will, uh withstand the test of time period what is that genre he's like the he's like the pyramids you ain't gonna destroy it what what genre did he create well, he definitely helped in the, in in the in the genre called R and B and rock and roll. Right. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> gumbo, gumbo, gumbo. But he also also <laughs> in, in in traditional New Orleans style music, he's he is a um, he's he's a main you know he's a main person. You know he right. he he's a, he's a part of a of a sound that that represents New Orleans. In the state of Louisiana and America, he is a part of a sound. It's like the Neville Brothers are part of that sound. It's like James Andrews, Trombone Shorty, uh, you know, uh, Herlin Riley, uh, uh, um, uh, Harry Connick. Uh, I, I mean, uh, 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 oh man, there's so there's a there's a, it's, a, it's so so many people that have contributed, you know, to that sound. You know, P- Professor Long here, Buddy Bolden. Jelly Roll Morton, Louis Armstrong, he's a part of that hierarchy. He is the Pope. The Pope just died, okay? There'll be no one to replace him. <laughs> um, also, uh, I want one more thing before I let you go. Um, uh, so the timeline, I talked to Ellis Marsalis, another part of the, that beautiful gumbo down there in New Orleans. I did about four hours of interviews with him, and he said that... Uh, <laughs> that uh, originally there was race records, and then eventually, yes. okay, so it was called race records, and then um, uh, they, it was an offensive term, so there, it was a lawsuit of some kind, so they changed the term to R and B, okay, and um, yeah, well, like, well, we can talk about that now. We can we we really get to get a few facts straight on that issue. <laughs> right, where did this, this term race music come from? Because number one. These 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 uh, reporting magazines that that had charts like Castbox and 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 uh, these other magazines that that were industry magazines they didn't have a place on the charts for black music so they put it in the back of the book and they called it race music okay that's where it really that's the real deal that's what re- that's where that was you could find that if you look on and do a little research you can look in the back. A billboard or whatever it was, a cash box, and these magazines, 
And because they didn't want to recognize African-American artists, they had a specific category that they put us under called race music. That's, 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 that's what I know about it. Right. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I'm just, when, when Elvis first started singing, they thought he was, uh, all right. Yeah. We're going to, uh, actually, you know what, Bill, I got, we got to jump, man. I, I will do this again, uh, real soon. It was, it was truly an honor. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a pleasure to, you know, hanging out with you and talking to you. You're a good guy yeah. and you're doing something to keep the music alive. You're, you're an important equation and factor to this. And, and with uh, without support from every community, be it Hispanic or white or black, African, Asian, Episcopalian, Jewish, Muslim, we all got to come together to, to create some value for our children and to keep the music alive. That's it. Humanity. Period. Humanity. All right, brother. Yes, exactly. Talk to you all soon. All right. Yep. Cheers.